Welcome, Legionaries, to episode 35 of Legion Cast. No, no fear. I am your host, Warwick, and joining me as usual is my co-host, Brandon. Welcome, Legion brothers, Legion sisters, and often forgotten, but never by me, those of you who say you're going to build a table and then never actually do it. Welcome to Legion Cast. That joke is specific. We have a very special guest with us today. Speaking of building tables... And somebody that knows the Mark of Kelf very, very well. Joining us is probably our biggest guest yet. Say hi, Lockie. Hello, everybody. This is Lockie from Zorbazorp. And uh, look, i got a lot of tables being built at the same time. Okay, Brando, I, I will get to all of them <laughs> in good time. Oh, you know, I was going to have to give you a hard time because I can't get on your streams anymore and shill for heresy content. So I got to do it here. I got to lure you onto my podcast so that I can say, when are we getting the Zorp cut of Mark of Kalf? We're ready for it. Let's make it happen. It's all but happening. No, we're really it's, excited it's all to have happening. you here. Yeah, yeah, I'm super, super pumped to be here. Uh, no, no fear. It's like the greatest heresy book ever, in my opinion. There's a lot of good ones, but man, I love this. Uh, and uh, yeah, I have no problem uh, waxing about the Mark of Kelf for hours on end. So it should be good fun. When we first started the podcast, we're only like a couple books in. And Brandon says, when we get to Know No Fear, I've got a guest in mind. And I was like, eh, whatever. And then like another couple books later, he's like, yeah, Lockie said that he wants to come on for that book. And I was like, no fucking way. Nuh-uh. And, and then here we book. are. This I really great. love this book. <laughs> it's quite yeah, it's, like I, it's literally completely unrelated to preparing for the podcast. I was already listening to it like two weeks ago, and Brando was like, "You still good for the third? And I was like, "Yeah, I'm actually perfectly ready." <laughs> yeah, that is so awesome. Uh, and it's so easy to say that this book is easily my favorite, and it's it's the entire reason that I picked Ultramarines as my first Legion to to start for Heresy. It it really makes you like the Ultramarines in a lot of different ways. So uh, I can't wait to get into that. But before we do any of that, why don't we talk about what's on our hobby table? Brandon, what have you been up to? What I've been up to is a couple of projects, actually. One heresy-related, one not. Um, my super-secret Christmas gift exchange is still on the table. Uh, getting close to finished up. I'm taking a lot of risks here with the conversions that I'm doing. I'm hoping that they pay off. I'm hoping that... The person I got is really going to enjoy uh, these. Warwick keeps asking me to send him pictures of them, even though it's a secret. So I keep sending him pictures of my feet. But <laughs> that's... Uh, you guys, that's... you'll never guess how easy it is to get feet pricks from Brandon. Yeah. They're going on wiki feet right now. It's, it's <laughs> weirdly easy. But the other project that I can talk about is um, I actually uh awesomely enough got tickets to the middle earth tournament at the las vegas open in january uh, so i am getting my mordor and serpent horde list all painted up i've already been i've been playing games like mad it's kind of put uh heresy on a bit of a back burner for me just because i'm not as familiar with this faction but i really want to play it there um so i've been playing like crazy and tinkering that list a bunch and painting a bunch of Harad guys, a bunch of orcs. Uh, it, it's really been fast and furious painting for me, but nothing gets me excited for painting like an event. So really looking forward to that. Warwick, what's on your table? So I'm kind of in the same boat. I've got my super secret gift exchange project almost done. I'm going to be working on some bases. I've got a little touching up to do and they're going to get mailed out just in a couple of days. And I'm really excited for that. I can't wait to get some feedback on them. I went, um, I don't want to say I went super simple, but it's a, 
it's a really easy paint job to do. And I think it looks pretty good. They're really cool. In fact, I like the models that I picked so much. I'm going to end up doing some for myself. And then uh, on top of that, I finally, well, I've gotten a couple more Night Lords models started and I'm kind of getting the ball rolling on that. I've been list hammering for a couple of weeks now, trying to figure out the first couple of lists I want to actually put together and get on the board. I've done both of the Night Lords uh, Rites of War, so the Terror Assault and the Swift Blade or the uh, yeah, the Swift Blade or whatever it's called. And with that one, I actually built a list that's like 26 bikes, uh, 26 jet bikes. It, it's crazy. And it, it feels like a meme list, but it's also the kind of thing that could be like just really crazy to actually put on the board. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm really excited for you to get that jet bike list because I just picked up like 15 Ravenwing Black Knights for my Dark Angels. So we're going to do some bike on bike Thramas Crusade. Oh, dude, I'm all about it. I can't wait. All right. Well, Lockie, what about you? What's uh, what's going on in the Zorp shop? <laughs> the Zorp shop. Yeah. So I'm always in two worlds, right? It's always one foot in Middle Earth and, and one foot in Heresy. So I've been tinkering away on some broad Middle Earth projects. I just did a big update on my favorite board ever, uh, which is uh, Dol Guldur, uh, which I have also uh, is, is I really love using Middle Earth boards in Heresy games. And so I've always been envisaging that that board uh, will be fantastic for uh, the Corn Shrine, which happens in uh, a sequence after No No Fear in the little book uh, Mark of Kelf, uh, which is a fun little mission. So that was almost heresy. And then I've also been doing some updates to uh, to Minas Tirith, my other big board. But in terms of the heresy landscape, it is all about the Imperial Palace at the moment. Um, I'm working away on, I'm building this kind of big dual scale layout. So it's a layout that works for both Epic and for uh, Heresy scale so that I can kind of zoom in and out, do bigger battles with Legion, uh, Legions Imperialis, and then zoom in and do some tighter battles with um, Horus Heresy 2. Uh, so that's that's been a really fun challenge, kind of kit bashing all the, the plastic Epic scale kits and foam and, and all sorts of goodies. And I also just went to back to Australia. We recently moved to New Zealand, for those of you who don't know me. Uh, and I was, I, I've, I've been separated from my beautiful Heresy armies for like eight months. They've all been sitting in my storage unit back in Australia. And I just brought nine army cases under the plane with me. So uh, I finally have here, it, it, it was like a missing piece this last period, but they are all here in New Zealand now. So I've got all my ultramarines, all my word bearers, all my world eaters, and my two titans uh, at heresy scale are all here. And the only thing that's left uh, in Australia is my Imperial Fists, which ironically is the thing that I need, you know, m more urgently for the for Imperial Palace stuff. But, uh, but that's good. So I'm like, I'm like zoned in uh, into a, into a real heresy space at the moment, which is really fun to be in again. Awesome. Yeah. You know, when you, when you talked about and in, in your video doing the dual scale board, I was like, I don't really know if that's going to look right. But, you know, in seeing the models come down that ramp, in, in the epic scale and then seeing the bane blade come down i was like no this totally works yeah, yeah it, i mean you put the bane really blade excited on and you're like oh yeah. god it's actually really big with the with the yeah. bane blade and then you put mm -hmm. like an epic sized bane blade and it's like this wall is like 500 <laughs> meters high man yeah. um it's it's good fun it's good fun yeah well we'll we will be eagerly awaiting that board i i do agree with you that the middle earth stuff worked very well for heresy um i remember a few of your mark of calf battle reports you use your oskiliath board and 
it, yeah, it I mean, blended ultramarines perfectly. right ultramarines yeah. have such a roman aesthetic and minas tirith is meant to be the rome of middle earth in tolkien's mm-hmm. eyes so there's like such a great kind of uh, transposition there all the the colonnades and the stonework you just sp- sprinkle a few turrets around particularly as in that first battle report which we'll touch on later uh focuses on leptius numinus which is uh the governor's palace and it's meant to be an old historic building on kelth anyway so that the architecture translated really nicely but it's always fun when terrain can do multiple things in in your collection it gives you a bit more versatility awesome well we're gonna get very in-depth during our book discussion about all of those battle reports i'm really excited to talk about them as well uh but should we talk about kind of some new some heresy news first uh we've gotten a few things the assault marines are going on pre-order a year and a half late finally (laughs) (laughs) i'm i'm not I think we talked about this in the last episode. I'm not going to pre-order. My local hobby store generally gets a few extras in. I'll just pick one up, uh, you know, a couple days after it actually comes mm-hmm. out. So I'm not really worried about not being able to pick one up. I think I'm going to use those. And Lucky, I was going to pick your brain on this. I'm going to use them to build my 10-man Loctaris squad. Oh, yeah. I think that could work well. Yeah. Have we seen any sprue photos yet? Or is it just a, like assembled painted minis? I can't remember. I think it's only I don't a simple think, painted. Yeah, I don't think we've, we've seen, seen sprues. But okay. what they've said in a couple of their paragraphs that they put out is that the the power weapon options are going to be really limited. I think the sergeant's just going to come with like a the power fist, power claw, or lightning claw, and a power sword. So okay. I don't think you're going to have like those. a lot of those assault squads, uh, one in every five can take a power weapon. I think you're going to be really limited on what's actually in the box. Not really yeah, a big okay. deal for me. I tend to to 3D print extra bits that I need. Um, and, like, I've already built my assault squad, so I was going to... And I've got leftover swords from my, like, Praetorian Breachers and a couple other kits. They're ultramarine swords, so uh, I'll be able to put those together as Loctaris really easily. I think he hit on a really good point there that I want to talk about here, which is that with this, this kit coming out, it's great. Um, and I'm glad that we're getting it. I think the problem that we're going to run into here from a sales standpoint in a GW perspective is everybody who really needed Assault Marines has already figured out their workaround. So I do wonder how well this kit's going to do and what kind of message it's going to send back to them there. It, it does worry me a bit. It Again, it's... I, I don't think there's any other way to put it than we needed this kit a year and a half ago. Yes, it does. It does feel a bit late, which is brutal. Obviously, we have no idea all the um, you know logistical pipeline issues that are going on behind the scenes. I'm sure it's a, a nightmare to kind of bring all these kits to the market, but uh, it is it is a shame it's it's taken so long to come out. I'm curious to see how it actually looks in hand. I love the new chest plate design. I think that really sets them apart. I'm not the hugest fan of kind of of mark six generally i really love two and three and four and five pretty everything but six but um uh as it's um it's it's really 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 cool in in sort of particular uses but this 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 new chest plate on the assault marines really drew me in i'm hoping that they are new legs um that it's not just the same leg piece from the normal mark six with a different because obviously that's that one piece and then the front chest plate clips on if we get more leg variety that could be really cool because it could just add to like a, a whole bunch of options to what we can do with all of the mark six kits and i really liked the shields that which look look like they're in in a good number in the kit um i thought the shields looked really sweet as well so definitely awesome to have wish it was earlier um, but uh, it's lovely that it's here. I think another good point that Brandon brought up on the last episode when we talked about these was the kit's not a 
it, they're just assault marines. You can't also use them as despoilers because they just come with jump packs. So it is unfortunate. This is not a multitasking kit. You can only make the one unit with it, which is kind of unfortunate because despoilers are another really handy unit to have in your back pocket. So uh, it, it's it's a kit, like Brandon said, it's a year and a half late. It only does one thing. My concern, I, I guess it's not really a concern. I'm just a little disappointed that it only comes with a limited set of power weapons when the squad can take a wide variety of things. That, yeah, um, I'm like I said, I'm still going to get one. I'm going to use them for a specialty unit. So even all its limitations that I'm pointing out, it's not going to stop me from getting one. All right. Well, let's talk about a couple of other teasers that they've had. We've had some characters uh, get posted on the old Warhammer community. Um, one of them, I'm like, that's okay. It's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. The other one, I think, looks super sexy. And that is the Dark Emissary for the Sons of Horus. I love this kit. I love this guy. Do you have time to talk about our Lord and Savior, the Warmaster? Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, I I'm already thinking about like how how would I work this guy into my uh my emperor's children be like, "Hey, you guys really need to stop being so weird and just like get on the get with the program here." <laughs> yeah, I'm going to end up building a detachment to go with my night lords. Yeah, one of my favorite things to do is to grab models from like one legion and then kit bash them to the other. So even like I, I think I did it with um uh Reldron, the uh, blood angels first captain uh i i like smashed him and turned him into an ultramarine by carving off all these blood angel symbols and i find that really rewarding because he's such a great model but i don't run blood angels so these two new uh consoles uh, i think are a real candidate for that interestingly i thought the sons of horus one was quite good but i really like the thousand sons one um that i was like i was like oh Ooh, Thousand Suns forced, and I had to squash that down before I uh, gained another legion. Let me be clear. The Thousand Suns one is a great model. I just don't like them. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I like all the Thousand Suns models, and I almost picked Thousand Suns as my traitor legion, but I'm firmly in the camp of Magnus did nothing right, so I just couldn't do it. Magnus did nothing wrong! No! <laughs> okay, look, you did a little bit, a little, a little tiny bit wrong. But, you know, you know, nobody's perfect. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, nobody's <laughs> perfect, and some people fail epically, and that's Magnus. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for these two to come out. The Both of them look like they could potentially be even a librarian conversion or something like that. I, I'm really happy with both, the, both of them. Like I said, I think we'll be... I might be grabbing that Dark Emissary just because he, he's doing it for me. I'm not going to lie. He's just doing it for me. All right. Anything else we need to talk to on the news front? Uh, there was a uh, exemplary battle that came out for Mechanicus, right? Yeah, it was a uh, tech guard. So and we kind of speculated on this a little in the pre-show. Uh, I, I was kind of wondering if this was foreshadowing of the new plastic army that they announced in their roadmap, because that's right around the corner. And we got to talking about that. If it's not Mechanicum, we're guessing it's going to be the the Imperial Guard guys that are, that are just scaled up from the Legion's Imperialis models that they've already previewed. Because what they did with a lot of the Space Marine models in Legion Imperialis is just shrunk down the plastic kits they already have. They just scaled them down in their their software design or whatever, and they turned them out in their... Uh, in their, uh, they set up molds for it and they just turn them out like that. So if they've, it sounds like they've already got the whole army designed at scale. They either just need to, um, they, they either needed to shrink them down for Legion Imperialis or blow them up for Horus Heresy. 
So all the pieces are there, and I'm really excited to see what we get. Yeah, Lockie, you have a lot of that Legion Imperialis stuff. Um, we, neither of us were got our hands on the box, but do you think, you know, based on looking at that those sprues and stuff, is that something that's in the cards for them? Obviously, when you shrink stuff down to such a small scale, there is going to be like such a reduction in detail that it kind of does make it difficult to look at like what the original say say they were 28 and they've been squashed like what those that original level of detail could have been in terms of the infantry um but the you know all, all the tanks they look great but we know that those those most of those tank kits already exist i think all of them in in large format plastic kits so if the infantry you know it, it makes sense to me that you would sculpt them larger scale and then smoosh them down so i, I it feels like it's you know a, a lot of a lot of ticking a lot of the boxes this this kind of theory uh so plastic solar ox i mean I'd, I'd be pretty stoked on that i love the original resin models um so it, it could be cool to see those uh, more universally on the table um yeah and you know we we, we love the militia we love the we love the poor humans in, 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 in deeply embedded within the transhuman civil war it's good fun yeah and on that note before we jump into um the, our book discussion here anybody get any games in lately yeah i got a game in i'm not proud of it either because over the Thanksgiving weekend here in America, my brother Maniple and I got together and um, I absolutely trounced him. I clubbed him so bad, I felt bad on the drive home. It, and like it, it, Brennan kind of talked me off the ledge on my drive home because he called me and asked me about it because Maniple had called him to talk to him about it. But Brennan's like, it sounded like he was rolling really bad. And he was. He rolled, like, what, three or four ones with Exodus in a row? So, like, every turn with Exodus, he did absolutely nothing. And then I think Exodus's weapons are, what, like, strength seven, so he's not doubling out toughness. I was still getting feel-no-pain against him. And I was making a lot of my rolls. So I was basically shutting him down in every corner. And I thought I had a really fun list. It was two, a 20-man squad of tacticals a 20-man squad of assault marines 20-man squad of breachers so it's basically an all-infantry list i also ran 20 nemesis destroyers which are awesome and a single leviathan dreadnought and five full mentaris and then i had um the praetorian breachers instead of suzerain this time i'm just i'm not gonna run suzerain against you guys anymore you've, you've made it clear you hate them so oh i, I hate them i still want you to bring them <laughs> okay good to know well i'm not going to take it easy on you then and, well, and, like and let me be clear here that's that's what part of the reason why I, I i called you to tell you like hey this just sounds like it was just a bad game for everybody involved is because you sent me your list and said hey this is what i'm planning to bring do you think this is too hyper tuned and i was like this doesn't bring anything that i'm afraid of that you usually bring like I mean, and you know, when we play, we usually bring the heat on each other because that's just how we like to play. But you were really toning it down. I was like, you only brought one dreadnought and a bunch of troops. I was like, I would motor through this. Like, this would be no problem. You would think, but I had a surprising amount of durability there on the board just with, I had basically apothecaries in every squad. So he was really struggling against all that. And, um, I, his damage output was just low, and I couldn't really figure out why. He brought the uh, the Fire Raptor again, which really struggles, man. Uh, I had a, a sergeant in one of my squads that had 
artificer armor, and he tanked all the armor saves except a couple, and then made his feel no pain after that. So the Fire Raptor, I think, the entire game killed one guy. Yeah, and this clubbing somebody while they were down, unfortunately, was the theme of gaming in our group for uh, since our last episode, because I also got to play a game, and I played against a 3,000-point Coltson Militia list of a uh, guy locally here who's just getting into the game, having a lot of fun. And I... I brought way toned down. I didn't bring any uh, Deathwing companions. I did not bring Dreadwing Interrupters. I didn't bring any of the usual stuff that I am like, this is the fill. I brought, I brought my bikes. Like I was like, I've heard these are awful. So I brought bikes with plasma guns. And you know what I found with the Colts and militia, all those big, scary templates that they have, they're all AP four. So my my marines he's dropping these big old pie plates on me every turn and i'm just laughing him off with power armor and it was kind of like it kind of made me feel like these these templates should be scarier like this should be something i am legitimately afraid of and unfortunately i was just able to mow through a lot of his stuff that third rate rule for uh for the for the cults and militia uh, if you guys are familiar with that, do you know what that is? So the third rate rule is all of their vehicles, because they're all rusted out and crap that they've just been able to pull out, is every hit is a penetrating hit. So there's no glances, only penetrating hits. So Dude, Sakarans would have a heyday with that, because they've got, they've got a, a high rate of fire and they've got exoshock. So yeah. all those pens are extra hits. It's awesome. Yeah. Now, I will say a lot of their stuff has front armor 14, so they do have that working in their favor. Ugh, but man, uh, it's that's just a rough rule. And then combine that with the fact that the templates can't make it through power armor. It's just, it's a tough thing to do. And so I I need to go back to the drawing board for what my fun friendly list is. Because apparently that was not it. I haven't played Heresy in like way too long. But I did get to play with uh, some of my Heresy models uh, just last weekend. Uh, we filmed the uh, the next installment of Dawn of War Warhammer, which is like a 40k rebuild for those of you in your audience who who aren't familiar. And so I was exploring, uh, it was like the final playtesting session of the Chaos Faction. Uh, so I ran my word bearers, uh, which are like perfect for Dawn of War. And it was awesome to get all my heresy models out again. Uh, and then had a couple of my uh, heresy scheme and era world eaters uh, to represent like 40k corn berserkers. Um, so it was, it was really nice to, to, it made me be like, oh God, need, need to play more heresy, getting out all my favorite models just before we ship them over to Australia. So huge danger of, uh, of more heresy games, especially now that I'm here with all the, all the, uh, New Zealand guys who are prepping for a pretty cool campaign here locally at the moment. So, uh, should be some heresy games on the future after the new baby comes anyway, once we get through that little period. <laughs> No, stop. More heresy on Zorpazorp. That would just be awful. It's yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's <laughs> happening. It's happening. All right, guys. Well, should we take a short break here and then we'll jump into our book discussion? back legionaries we're going to be getting into this book no no fear and this is the the iconic battle of kalth the betrayal at kalth when the word bearers finally announced announced themselves to the ultramarines that the civil war is on and not only 
is it kicking off? It's already kicked off because they immediately get into the, the you know, there's been fighting on Estevan and it, which it comes off as like a lot of erroneous information because the, at this point, the Ultramarines think that Estevan is compliant. They, they have no reason to think that there's been fighting there or, you know, what the context of it is, what's been going on. So it's immediately kind of confusion on the Ultramarines and it really throws them off. And, um, one of the beginning scenes that really stuck with me, um, and it, it really gets into the 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 text and or not the te- the content in the subtext of the issue itself. It's when um, Sorat Chure and uh, as a Captain Luciel are having their discussion about you know the the word bearers are largely ashamed of Lorgar because he's never found his purpose, and. Luciel, who's a, a Ultramarines captain, gives this kind of heartfelt response that, you know, maybe Lorgar is still trying to find his way in the galaxy and he has yet to discover his true purpose. To which Sorat Trey clearly, know, clearly knows that, you know, he's already found his destiny. He's already doing the work of the gods. And, you know, this this really kind of lends to the, the magnitude of what is about to happen. And it's when Chure gets into this kind of uh, he just starts to discuss that this it's using betrayal, not as a tactic, but also as like a property of war. And it, it's what kind of fuels the, the, the whole conflict going on in, in this, um, it's what kicks off the rune storm basically, because they, they're able to harness this collective revulsion of the ultramarines as they're betrayed there on the spot and as the book goes on, we find out that's what kicks off this massive roiling warp storm throughout the entire galaxy. So what are some parts in the intro that really stuck with you guys? So big thing for me, this is the first, uh, I think, full site or full length novel that we've had from Dan Abnett since Prospero Burns. And for those of you who listened to our episode on that, you know that I really didn't enjoy Prospero Burns. I didn't enjoy how he did it. And a lot of that boiled down to... I didn't think he executed the mystery and the we don't know what's happening element very well. And in this book, he goes the exact opposite direction. We all know what's about to go down. He doesn't pretend like you don't know. And so it's it's very good. It, there's a part that stuck with me here in the beginning of this book is when um, I can't remember the, the guy's name, but there's that sergeant who's mustering with the Ultramars. And they're just talking, they're shooting the breeze, um, talking about where they're going to go, fight the Greenskins. And then it zooms back out to the narrator and it goes, and none of that mattered because in two days he will be dead. And I You're talking about Sergeant that. Alec? Yeah, I love that. Alec, yeah. like, all, of, all of the buildup of this book is just, these guys are going about their normal life and you as the reader have, and I think he just, I, he did this so masterfully. You, uh, Warwick, you know, I'm a big Lovecraft guy. And one of my favorite parts of Lovecraft is just this building dread that you get with Lovecraft. And I think he, I think Abnett really hit that. I mean, it's different in the sense of, I know what is going to happen, but that is what's causing this dread to build in me of like, Oh, and there are these characters. I actually like these guys and they're all about to get absolutely murdered. (laughs) And so going that opposite direction, I, I just, I think he did an excellent job. 
yeah, you could have easily started this sequence of the the opening chapters of the book with a massive action sequence with all this kind of huge betrayal kicking off, but it's the build up. It's it's chapters and chapters of introducing all of these characters and beginning to weave their arcs together and you know what is going to happen and it is eating you. When 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 is that moment where it, where it all fires off? And then there's just he just manages to describe this absolutely like planet-wide devastation the kind of inciting moment that kicks off the betrayal is when the fleet tender campanile uh, which is a ship has 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 been mob boarded out beyond kelf's uh, kind of outer reaches of the system and and they 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 basically it's the trojan horse right it's the classic trojan horse the word bearers scooch on in they get past all the defenses because it looks like an ultramarine vessel and then right when they're close into orbit they accelerate to about a third of light speed as fast as they could get sort of maximal sublight velocity and crash into the orbitals and cause this massive firestorm and then eventually you know a ship crashes into the planet and it's just chaos and there is just unending death and this huge chapter of describing that moment, somehow it doesn't, you don't get numbed to the devastation. You don't go, okay, okay, I've heard about, you know, 60,000 people on this ship, 30,000 people on this ship. I get it, Dan, people are dying. It just keeps ratcheting up and you just keep getting like like goosebumps and more and more tense as you're listening to it. And that at that exact moment on this huge battlefield scale devastation and conflict is happening you are finding all of these little personal moments of betrayal centered around the kicking off of uh, Soratchure trying to describe to Luciel trying to get his friend in the ultramarines to understand that he's about to murder him uh and tr- and and their kind of relationship and so that's that's kind of like that sets the tone for the whole book it's this mass scale devastation and death and somehow it doesn't lose its gravity it doesn't become just you know, oh yeah, cool. Another million people died. Whatever, I've heard that before. And it's it, it, that's contrasted against all of these individual heroic moments and heroic characters and and tragedies. Often, because most of them end up dying. Uh, it's it's amazing stuff. The kind of like what we talked about earlier. So much of the storytelling is at once foreshadowing and retrospective because of uh, of how our perception is using the mark of Kalth, which is the the story or the the timeline, basically, that the Ultramarines use to map out the betrayal at Kalth. So we have the Mark of Kalth, that's that's our timetable, basically. So we, as the reader, kind of exist in this place of, of foreshadowing and retrospective at the same time. And it's it makes for such an interesting story. Now, um, one of the scenes that really stuck with me, um, again, in this, this intro, like right after... Uh, all the, right after the Campanile hits the shipyard, um, is, is throwing ships out of orbit, people are looking up into the sky and they're just seeing this capital ship backsliding into the atmosphere. And they're all just totally helpless. They know it's going to come down like right on or near the city. And what do they do? I mean, they're under fire. Uh, they are, they, they're so confused. They're so helpless. And I thought there was some, uh, another good moment of foreshadowing here when, our boy Remus Ventarnus and uh, the essential Arbute are trying to reestablish contact. And they find this old radio tower and Arbute says it should have been disassembled years ago because it's so old. And when 
uh, Remus asks her, why is it still there? She's like, well, it's reliable. It resists the, the uh, radiation storms every 15 years. I think that's a really important piece of foreshadowing right there because it alludes to the existence of the arcologies on the planet, which is where all of the survivors end up fleeing at the end of the, uh, towards the end of the story. Before we get too far ahead of ourselves here, because I know we all want to talk about the betrayal kicking off and stuff. I do want to spend a little bit of time also in that buildup still, because there's some really interesting character building that goes on during that foreshadowing. Um, specifically, I want to talk about Remus Ventarnus himself, our boy, uh, the man with the standard, the one that you absolutely need. Uh, I, he's a really fascinating character to me because it, it pulls me back to these first couple of books, Horus Rising, Galaxy in Flames, um, when there was this question going on in the Sons of Horus Legion of what are we going to do once the galaxy is actually conquered? And the Ultramarines actually have an answer. Gilliman has thought about this, and that's why he is pushing his, his warriors to become statesmen. It's one of the things that really sets the Ultramarines apart from other legions is they have thought about what is, what's going to happen. And it kind of seems to me like a lot of these guys are really looking at this, this muster at Calf as like the last grand effort of the great crusade. And even though they know a lot of this is for show, um, it's really just the war master flexing his muscles. They're looking forward to it. And Remus is really struggling with this idea of, I know that I know what I'm supposed to do. I know what my Primarch wants me to do. I am a warrior at heart, and that is what I do. And little does he know that there there is going to be no statecraft coming in the near future. It's it's going to be only war. Um, and a lot of these characters, I feel like, have that um, have that in their you know kind of in their introduction and in their buildup. You know, the, the entire. Uh, build up with Remus is him going to this uh I can't I don't know what the the place is called but there's a, some logistical the Fusicon. yeah the hollow Fusicon where there's some logistical backup happening and he's like okay I can't just walk in there and demand what I want I've got to be stately that's what I need to do um and he's really struggling with trying to make this happen um and it turns out he's not really going to need any of that and then also, my probably other favorite character is Antonin Thiel, who is marked for censure. And turns out that this guy was really on to something. So um, I just wanted to hit those points. I, I really, I didn't want us to blow too quickly past this buildup because these characters and the way that they're introduced, it, it's really well done. Yeah, the other really interesting aspect amongst all of this huge kind of conflict uh on on a on a legion scale and on a military scale um is the character of old person elanius person who who we meet in this early chapter of the book and and he's kind of in that similar vein uh, to ventanus that he he has a really interesting story that unfolds over the novel uh, and we and we and, and as we move through the, the the series of the heresy books we find out just how of an important person he really is but he is essentially a representative of the civilian populace he's a he's a farmer he's he's come and settled on calf and, and we see uh the the events of the day unfolding through a, a more human eyes and and then we we start to understand that he is perhaps not as human as he seems <laughs> like at all uh but it's he i think his his 
one of the most compelling characters to me. And it's and I find that the strength of the early books of the Horus Heresy series is the the really fantastic kind of kaleidoscope of characters. There's so many amazing human characters set amongst the Legion characters uh, in those first five novels. Um, and and no no fear is exactly the same there's great human characters there's great transhuman characters they're all really well-rounded really developed they get a great arc and a great kind of they get time to breathe before they're buried in in plot um and i, and I think the first part of the book really nails that launching pad and then it all kicks off and it's all like like uh like warwick said it's that it's the it's all spined by the mark of kelth uh, which which is the, the the Legion combat record. So everything's got little time codes, and we're meant to be reading notes of Gilliman's private diary upon the upon the. It's it's the actual combat record that we're looking at. It's got this great kind of weaving spine that keeps it all kind of tied together. It's a fantastic kickoff. Oh man, we're gonna end up arguing about all Pearson. I do not like I this character. So many people like, he's loved or hated. He's I, yeah. I absolutely I love. I don't get it. I think he's awesome. He's an absolute unit. I, he's great. That's why I don't like him. Is that he's an absolute unit, and I already have plenty of those. If but if we talk about if we want to talk about human character, shut up, Warwick. Nobody likes you. Everybody's on this podcast for me, and you know it. Just kidding. Yes, yes, we have. Uh, no, if we want to talk about human characters that I was really compelled by, um, the the brand new kid who just got married a couple of days ago. And the veteran Sergeant Crank, I actually think are much better characters. Uh, yeah, Reigns. Uh, Reigns and Crank, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it's Crank, yeah. Because um, these guys to me are like, what would you, what would you as a regular person do in an apocalypse level event? And that's what these guys are. There's not, oh, you know, when I was sailing with Jason and the Argonauts, I did help, but there's no issue. No, there's none of that. These guys are just... And that's what I love about them. They are no, I, regular I actually, people. I do agree with that sentiment because it's like, what what would I do in the apocalypse situation? Well, I would die right away. I'm not even going to bullshit anybody. I There's no hope. I'm not in great shape. I've got very little skills. I'm, for the love of God, I do a podcast. That, that tells you all you need to know. I'm, I'm not long for this earth in an apocalypse situation. But uh, these guys really embody that really well because they're always running into trouble and it's they're just living through this nightmare. It's it's terrible for them. Well, and let's be honest, they're also just running away, which is exactly what you would do. Yeah, I should amend that. Uh, what I mean by the Elanius person giving us the viewpoint through the human storyline, I don't mean all himself because he's obviously a perpetual. He knew the emperor like he is not a human in the normal stance. But the characters that his kind of little cast that move through his story thread of these normal humans experiencing this tragedy, they give us this lens. You know, we, we obviously have Kat, the incredibly traumatized young girl, and then uh, Zy, Hebert Zybes, and, uh, and, and Crank as well. Um, and, like those guys, that, you're right, they, they are the ones who give us this, this human experience of, of what it would be like to be moving through this apocalypse. And then he manages to kind of become the Gandalf, if you will and try and guide them through it, even though they have no understanding of what's really happening. Like you said, he, he sailed with Jason and the Argonauts, for goodness sake. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I love that line drop where he's just like, and there I was, selling with Jason 
Uh, there I was on Jason's ship with nothing but a sorceress and a sheepskin to show for our... Yeah, when I first heard that, Dude. I was like, is, is, is Dan using, like, metaphor here or something? Like, what's going on? And then, like, a little bit later on, it's like, he opens a book and it's like, this writing is 22,000 years old, copy of another copy, 22... And he's like, my handwriting looked a bit different back then. And I'm like, oh, no, this guy's... Okay, there's, there's something going on here. <laughs> Yeah. The, one of the one of the instances for me was when he's when he's calling out directions. He's like, "We're going for Asius," and I was like, "Isn't that Greek or some shit?" Yeah, yeah. And then he's like, "Oh yeah, that's what the Grecians called it." You know, back when I was sailing with Jason. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. I I really the one I really the the callback I really liked is when he makes the makeshift bayonet, and he's like, "Well, it worked at Austerlitz, so it should work here." Where did I learn bayonet fighting? For done. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I, I, one of the most haunting parts of this book for me is when they, they're running, they, they cut away from the humans and they come back to him and they're running away and rain is just swearing at crank up and down. And he's like, I don't know what that were, but it weren't your wife. Uh, and I, the, how the, the demons end up working in this book. It's very body horror. It's very interesting. It's, it's, I, I don't know. I like it. It's very Lovecraftian to me. It's, it's executed very well. Um, I, this book to me is functionally a horror book and I, I, I'm here for it. The, the element of cosmic horror when uh, Gilman is talking to Lorgar on the holodeck thing and Lorgar basically hangs up on the phone on Gilliman, but there's still this silhouette there on the deck. And Gilman's like, cut the link. And the master of Vox says, I cut the link 30 seconds ago. And there's this, just this demon standing on the deck of their ship. It's just there. And Gilman says, I could, he could smell it. It smelled like rotten eggs and, and, and horrid flesh. And then just chaos reigns from that point on. And it comes out, it feels like it comes out of nowhere. It, it lends a lot to show that this was very, very planned uh, by the word bearers. And it was planned fairly well. I think the word bearers get a lot of crap of like, they can't do anything right. And towards the end of the book, there's definitely some moments where I'm like, Oh, well, if you guys weren't stupid, this wouldn't happen. But um, it, it does show that it, it is actually planned very well. Uh, the first time, when they're talking about the scrap code before the whole thing kicks off and Gilliman calls Lorgar, uh, the way this has been described to me in the past is like Lorgar's super jumpy and edgy. And I didn't get that at all. I was like, this guy's cool as a cat. He is ready to stick a knife between your ribs and you will, you will not see it coming. So um, I, I thought that the word bearers were executed very well. And then there's, there's the part where the, they're trying to pull the ships uh, out of the docking moorings. And uh, what is Corferon's ship name again? Is it the Fidelis Lex or that, that's Lorgar? The uh, Infantis uh, in, Imperator, I think. Yeah. And like that captain on that other ship, he's like, oh, the word bearers think we're attacking them. This is a huge problem. And it like, as he's about to die, it dawns on him. He's like, we can't move and shoot because we were powered down for a muster, but they are moving and shooting. So it just a lot of these guys as they die it's really interesting to see their thought process of well hold on this shouldn't actually happen this way if this is unintentional and then they die since we're getting into the kickoff here i want to start i want to start talking about some some games and some battle reports here because um 
I know Lockie, your mate Ollie at Broadsword Wargaming. I believe he did the the battle in the forest here with the with the Ultramarines getting ambushed there. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? And actually, maybe give us an introduction for those who aren't familiar with your Mark of Kalf campaign, real quick. Okay, so Mark of Kalf. Uh, like we said before, the Mark of Kalf. Uh, it, it has a twofold meaning, actually. It's the name of the uh, the combat record, a time code count that is it goes through all Ultramar's record of every combat. And we have that beautiful moment in this novel, No No Fear, where uh, Gilliman says that the Mark of Kelth didn't count until they started returning fire. Everything before that was just treachery. And so in those early chapters, we're getting these Mark of Kelth codes that are at a negative because we're counting down to this zero 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 zero, and And there's that... That great moment where um, uh, the Gilliman's starting to work out what's happening, and Marius Gage uh, on uh, on um, his the the big flagship is like, you know, Gilliman, I have to check. Have you just uh, authorized the return of fire? And Gilliman says, "Return of fire is so ordered." And he turns to the Mark of Vox and he says, "Master of Records, start the count." And then it all kicks off, and and so that Mark of Kelth uh, uh, became the sort of through line for our campaign. So I wanted to make a I, a really massive Horus Heresy campaign when I worked out that second edition wasn't too far away. Um, I My mate just happened to be selling these uh, really fantastic uh, word bearer and ultramarines, uh, which at the time were about 5,000 points each. Um, and then so I was like, this is great. I grabbed those. Well, all right, what, what books are these in? Uh, all right, I'm up to book 15 at the moment. No, no fears, not too far away. Kept listening. And then I got there and I was like, oh man, I got the other, like the, my two favorite armies from probably the best part of this heresy I've heard so far. So um, the campaign itself was um, a huge kind of collection of YouTube content. Uh, it was 30 videos in total, nine battle reports and 21 hobby videos encompassing scenery and, and army building. Uh, and they all sort of wove together. And the nine battle reports, which are not all out, uh, the, the campaign did get put on hiatus, but it will be returning, uh, were spread across uh, Zorbazorp and my mate's uh, channel, Broadsword Wargaming. So I basically had to distill the combat down into a sequence of the kind of most crucial battles that occur throughout the book. Uh, and we filmed them all at once. So I flew Ollie from Ireland over to Australia and we filmed for 11 days straight doing about 20, 20, 18 to 20 hour days um, over the, the 10 day period. And then after that, I jumped back on a plane and we flew to Ireland and did another two days of filming there at, uh, at Ollie's studio. Um, and so we kicked it all off with the first uh, kind of big combat moment uh, which is the defense of Leptius Numinous. So we get all of these uh, kind of story threads, these different parts uh, of, of the battle, these different perspectives on the betrayal. Um, and then over on Ollie's side, his first battle is uh, the battle in uh, one of the muster fields uh, in the Sharad province, which is um, uh, the 121st and 122nd companies, I think. Um, or it might have been the 111, 112. Captain uh, Sergeant Ann Kaiser um, basically has to lead this uh, co complete withdrawal as they are ambushed almost in their sleep by the word bearers who are co-mustering with them. They're fighting against Titans and, you know, Land Raider Proteus and Achilles, and they're all just like smashing down on them. And they're just infantry fleeing through woods that don't, don't even have time to pick up heavy weapons. Um, and so uh, we, we, 
wanted to kind of capture that moment in our in our first battle report of of just this horde of word bearers constantly coming on from the sides of the board uh and the ultramarines had to kind of fall back to, a, to try and salvage something from this calamity and that's where uh where our campaign kicked off it's a really it's a really brutal scene because you've got they're in this lush forest uh, which is just being absolutely obliterated as they're trying to flee to safety. It's quite a, a strong juxtaposition imagery-wise. Yeah, it's a very vivid scene too when uh, Sergeant M. Kaiser finally falls and uh, you know he's he's accepted death and he's ready to to die, and he ends up uh, getting crucified to a titan. Uh, is that oh is that not him? That wasn't M. Kaiser. That was somebody else. Oh, okay. Sergeant Ann Kaiser is is hit that that captain's sergeant. Uh, that is um, Captain. Oh, okay. F- uh, uh, not Frasterex. It's um, uh, mental blank. So there's two captains of the two companies that are mustered there. Uh, one of them, mm-hmm. Frasterex, is basically executed at the moment of oh, it's Acretus, Captain Acretus. So Frasterex gets executed at the inciting moment of the betrayal, and Acretus is trying to rally the forces. Uh, to to fall back and eventually he decides that he just can't fall back any further and he turns to face the word bearers and he is so covered in blood from mass reactive shells detonating in the brothers around him that his war paint is is basically no longer blue and so the word bearers who are pursuing him walk right up to him thinking that he's a word bearer because it's that crimson scheme and he just goes right i'm i'm going in and and before he realizes he's amongst them and killing them and chopping them and he, he takes down like almost a whole squad before he does finally uh, get just absolutely wailed on by a, a group of word bearers. And then, yeah, they, they crucify him to the front of one of the Warhound Titans, which then continues to pursue Sergeant and Kaiser as they retreat. It's it's yeah. really, and really this vivid. This is just yeah. it's so brutal because, you know, at first, for a second there, when he's cutting these guys down, I was like, ooh, we're getting a little ultramarine power creep here of like, he's killed like 20 guys and hasn't been stopped yet. And they're like, and then he got crucified to a Titan. And I was like, okay. <laughs> no issues this balance is I just this is how, yeah. <laughs> i just love how it's written too and it's like by the time the word bearers realize he's an ultramarine he's already killing them that's and that's how it's written it's so cool yeah and, and it is very vivid of like he's so covered in his battle brother's blood like it, it is just such a brutal thing to envision and it yeah really well done here and quite it's, a good it's battle quite reporting. interesting um just how often dan abnett relies on color uh and and the the real kind of uh imagery and symbolism of color throughout the whole book that's sort of where, where we see that first moment obviously he's constantly referring to the the word bearers new color scheme because previously they were uh, kind of an ashen gray steel gray they've re- kind of emerged in this new battle scheme of crimson red uh and the way that he describes uh globules of crimson blood floating around in one of the um the space battles where they're fighting on the exterior of the ship where uh, i think the phrase is uh, now there are blue army blue armored bodies floating amongst the red but the globules of blood are all the same color um, and then later on, when there's this huge kind of detonation, where the ultramarines manage to regain control of the weapons grid and start nuking the orbit, the surface of the planet, they get all of the defending ultramarines who have blue armor get covered in the ash from the detonations around them. And Ventanus remarks 
in you know in the narrator's voice that uh his his color of the his war plates color is now the ashen gray of the original word bearer's scheme uh, it's it's color is really really visceral and really really relied on by dan um to kind of ground us in this world this really really engaging way to kind of hook us in i think yeah it is very expertly done so yeah a lot of this book ends up you know a lot of kind of the mid section of this book is really just a lot of these guys reacting to um this betrayal that's kicked off and kind of coming to realize hey this is not a mistake this was premeditated um what are we going to do now um work you want to talk about our boy remus for a while and how he handles yeah, it so the the way that remus kind of starts to understand that is when you know after the the ship falls out of orbit and um uh, no it, it's before the ship falls out of orbit when uh when they're fleeing the hall of Fusicon, they got hit. It's, it's when it's raining Bane blades on them. <laughs> it's, yeah. Brandon, I, I'm in the middle of a busy work day one day and I just get this text from Brandon. It's raining super heavies. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? And he's like, Oh no, I just got to that part. No, no fear. It's raining Bane blades because when this orbital dock gets hit, it just cuts loose all these cargo and you know, all the cargo of all these ships that are up there in orbit. So all the stuff that's falling down are like, they would seem you know, mundane in a lot of other contexts, almost. It's like, yeah, a tank is on the ground. That's where tanks go. But to see one falling out of orbit, you'd probably shit your pants. In one of the early uh, drafts of the the campaign plans, we actually wanted to have like an, uh, a prologue, which was that mission where Ventardus is like fleeing through and the Bane Blades are like dropping down onto the board and I was going to convert up these like Bane Blades and Fell Blades that were slamming into the earth that they had to avoid. Uh, but we decided it was uh, perhaps a little too expensive on, on resources to get fell blades and glaives, just cutting them in half to stick them <laughs> into the ground. I Okay, this is a bit off topic. When I went to Warhammer World, I saw that, I'm sure you've seen it too, the table that they have, which is the crashed Warlord Titan. And I was like, you know that's a real kit because it's Warhammer World. And I was like, I want Warlord Titan as terrain money. Like, that's what I want. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So as our boy Remus, the Chad of Kalth, is you know fleeing through this total horror show, they're uh, they're on their way to this this comms relay station that I mentioned a little bit ago, and on the way there they pass this train depot where there was this muster point for several squads of Ultramarines, and as they're running through, he and his sergeant notice that all these bodies have all been shot in the back, and Remus think gets to thinking to himself they were all waiting to board the train. They were all shot in the back before the orbital docks got hit. This was all premeditated, and it's how he's putting all this together. And after that, he's like, those bastard word bearers are taking out the old grudge on us because remember the the, the Ultramarines shamed the word bearers at Monarchia. And the Ultramarines just have... I want to talk about that for a second because we get a little bit of that from the Ultramarines perspective. Obviously in the first heretic, we got that from the word bearers perspective and how they took that. Obviously we knew this is coming from their end. The Ultramarines are actually incredibly regretful of being the ones used for the shaming at Monarchia. Like Gilliman talks about that. So I really think it's a great contrast of, of how they both view that, that pivotal event. Anyway, aside, you made me lose my thread, but whatever. Well, you know, it just, it, it all boils down to this. There's, uh, so the Ultramarines are totally justified in thinking that the word bearers are holding a grudge. But we also get this dialogue between 
Gilliman and Lorgar of Lorgar saying, you know what, I don't really give a shit about that anymore. I found a better way. And he basically denounces the Emperor. He kind of hints at these these new the new powers rising, the ruinous powers coming into play. And that's when we we get into the uh, you know, in the in the previous scene, Gilliman had kind of put it all together, you know, with the timeline. He figures out the Campanile is what hit the orbital docks, uh, and he all it all kind of loops back to the what does he call it the um, pre prerequisite of malice or whatever. So they were they it, they intended to do this the whole time because they had to take the Campanile by force. They had to you know they had to board it. They had to take it over and then ram it into the docks. So. You know, it, it confirms that they had been planning this as an accident, and it's it's really cool to see Gilman kind of in full swing here because the the fist of McCrag's systems are all down. They've got no cogitators or computers or whatever. They've got no record keeping. They've got no sensors. So Gilman is standing in an observation window with a pen and paper, taking notes, just copious notes the whole time, and piecing together this battle battle you know, this whole battlefield you know just with his eye. And it's incredible to see how the, the Primarch's mind works more efficiently than a lot of the supercomputers that we see in the Warhammer, uh, the Warhammer setting. So seeing Gilliman kind of go full tilt, just just taking notes, being being the total book nerd that he is, is really cool. You know, we get this. There's a running joke that we're all familiar with that all the Ultramarines ma- are masters of is Microsoft Excel, but. You really get to see it with Gilliman here with how he's just scrawling down notes and writing everything and figuring out this. And they have this philosophy of information is victory. Uh, and you you see how he truly is able to take everything in and ingest it, analyze it, and then come up with a new solution all at the snap of a finger. And it, it's really impressive and this, it, it really lends credence to why the Ultramarines are such a massive threat to the traders. Because can you imagine if this force had gone unchecked at the start, you know, if, if they hadn't been massacred at Calf, how this whole heresy would have been over from the start? You know, I, I really do think of, it, it's, it's actually kind of funny to me later when um, Gilliman is talking about like the four Primarchs who their legions with with just one of them he could take the entire galaxy and it's kind of funny to me in that that he doesn't mention the dark angels because for me personally those two legions together are the most powerful legions and it seems to me that Horus agrees in that because he spreads the dark angels across the entirety of the outer sectors so that they can't get back together and they get harried by the light night lords the entire time and then he does the opposite plan on the ultramarines he brings them all together in one spot to hopefully get wiped out in one fell swoop it doesn't go that way necessarily but it it's still pretty efficient uh i think we kind of might have glossed well and there's still a lot of setup that we're missing it's kind of the problem that we're going to have i think we kind of did the same thing with like mechanic and a couple other books that we talked about there's a lot of back and forth there's a lot of overlap in the story so we kind of forgot to talk about our boy and Thiel. Uh, he is on the he's on the fist of mccrag and he is facing censure because he was running theoreticals and we didn't even talk about the the whole theoreticals versus practicals uh method that the ultramarines have of problem solving you know they they throw out 
you know, what's, what's, uh, you know, how, like one of the good examples is how do you kill an orc? This captain is asking one of his, uh, one of his new recruits, you know, how do you kill an orc? And this kid goes, you know, bolter mass reactive to the, to the torso. And the captain says, uh, you know, practical, they take a lot of killing. You need to either go for the head or the spine. You have to disable them more efficiently than a torso shot. And it, it, uh, it, balances the the theoretical practice of imagining you can do something versus the experience that somebody else might actually have. So what Aeon and Thiel's whole philosophy is, uh, we're at the end of the Great Crusade. The word bearers and ultramarines are mustering to go take down this last orc stronghold that this this muster force they're putting together is comparable to the force that took... Olinor. Um, Olinor. It's comparable to the force that took Olinor, and they're going to take on this Gazlak Xeno hold. And everybody knows that Gazlak Xeno hold isn't another Olinor. This is just posturing by the Warmaster to throw his weight around to get the Ultramarines and Warbearers to work together. Anyway, Aen and Thiel has this philosophy. We're at the end of war. The, the Adeptus Astartes has conquered every other force in the known galaxy, thus establishing themselves as the greatest warriors in the galaxy. Therefore, we must know how to fight the greatest warriors in the galaxy. He has been running theoreticals this whole time on how to kill other space marines. And it kind of revisits this, this old notion to us now, but it's new in the context of this story. Space marines have never killed each other before. Granted, like I said in this story, we've seen that a lot already, and it feel never has. So this kind of gets up the chain of command and his captain or whatever finds out that he's been running theoreticals against other space marines. And so he's being punished for it. And if this is a scene as enough of a, a kind of an oddity that Gilliman himself has said, I'm going to handle this. So Aeon and Thiel's on the flagship awaiting censure from Gilliman himself, which seeing a sergeant, I don't think even think he's a veteran sergeant at this point. He's just, just a, a line guy basically. He winds up on the uh, on the bridge of the flagship, waiting in Gilman's like personal armory or whatever, and he's there for so long, and he gets to thinking, you know, I've already committed this egregious sin. It, I don't get in any more trouble than this. I'm going to go ahead and practice with all of Gilman's unique weaponry here. So he's pulling down these exotic long swords and axes and stuff, and you know, fighting against these servitors for a while. And it's just kind of a funny scene. He's like, well, I can't get in any more trouble take this awesome sword right here this is um one thing that i kind of feel like was just it's not necessarily something wrong with the book i just feel like it was a missed opportunity in that um if you remember when in deliverance lost it talks about at the drop site massacre the traders had you know taken new bolt rounds and they created new bolt rounds designed specifically to punch through power armor and that the loyalist legions there didn't have them so they weren't as efficient at getting through power armor and I really think this could have been was a bit of a missed opportunity in that you could have shown that hey, the Ultramarines don't have this, you know, upgraded weaponry designed for getting through power armor, especially with this guy being punished for the idea of fighting other space marines. We know the word bearers have it. They got it on Istvan. They got it before Istvan. So I, I think it could have been just a you know a, a good tidbit that you know somebody sees like, hey, we're scratching and dinging their armor and they're punching straight through ours and then when we get to Thiel when when the demons invade the ship Thiel goes with the practical 
he's like, the theoretical is we've never seen anything like this before. And the practical is I'm going to fight like they've never seen us before. So he just grabs random weapons off the Primarchs rack and is like, I'm going to, this looks good. Let's start chopping with that. So I, I think there was just a bit of a missed opportunity there to, the, uh, they call to, it the, they call it the by any means necessary edict or whatever. Yeah. I thought that was just so funny by any means necessary. The last so rule funny. is there are no rules. <laughs> All right, where do we want to go from here, guys? We've been talking about this. Uh, should we talk about Leptius Numinus? Or no, I think first, that's the, okay, the next, first next major point, yeah, yeah. Well, first, I need Warwick. I need you to talk about the cataphracty and the, the Legion standard. Oh God, this, yeah. One of my favorite scenes is when um, uh, Remus and his sergeant are trying to secure transport and get away from this wrecked comm station. They come up on this unit of guardsmen. Uh, they're trying to secure this this small outpost or whatever, but they're they have brought in like a land speed or whatever, and they've got this watcher with them that's just a cataphracty terminator, one cataphracty, and all Remus has is this bent standard he picked up from I think it was from that train depot where the uh, legionaries were waiting to board. He claims this things like this is kind of this thing that you know it's the symbol of Calf, you know the mark of betrayal basically. And we need to, to raise the standard to find. So we, all he has is that and his power sword. And then his uh, sergeant that's with, with him has, you know, his melee weapon and a bolter. But basically Remus runs through this whole squad of just cultists and, and, and militia or whatever. And, you know, he's swinging his sword left and right. And he fights his way all the way through up into this cataphract, uh, this cataphract terminator. And he ends up killing the cataphract terminator with the standard itself. He jams the end of the standard in the visor and twists it around until the cataphract is dead. And it's just this, it, it seems totally impractical because you wouldn't think that the most heavily armored space Marine there on the field would get killed with the, the end of a pole. And it's just, it's just a funny scene. It's kind of, um, it's the, the, you know, we have to be as unexpected as possible thing again. It's just, it's really funny. It's kind of out of, well, I thought it was funny anyway. Uh, it's just totally out of pocket. Oh, it's great. And my personal favorite part of that whole encounter is this kind of lead cultist guy is a bit of a recurring character. He starts chasing all and his squad of humans. Uh, but my favorite part of that is guy next to him gets shot by a bolter, sees a space Marine charging with a Legion standard and a power sword and goes, hang on. He doesn't have a bolter. He doesn't have a bolter, everybody. <laughs> All right, should we talk from where they go from there, which is Leptius Numinus? Should we talk about that? Essentially, uh, Remus and the uh, the other space, the other Ultramarine with him, they find this tech priest who she worked as part of the Kalth weapons grid system, which was disabled by scrap code at the kickoff of the betrayal. And because of that, this huge weapons grid the word bearers basically took control of it and started blowing ships out of the sky they actually made a critical mistake with it that we'll talk about a little bit later um but they find this and they're looking for a data engine to get some kind of comms back and they find out there there's a data engine underneath this governor's palace of leptius numinous and it's a civilian uh it's, it's not a military target so they feel reasonably that it was spared from the initial bombardment and not targeted. So they gather up some guys and they find out the Skitari who are escorting 
this this tech priest, they actually have short range comms still intact, uh, which none of the ultramarines have Vox whatsoever. So they're using the Skitari to kind of communicate back and forth and and gather elements of ultramarines back together. But they start using a a word challenge. Think uh, if you've seen Saving Private Ryan, the old Thunder Flash. Uh, it's it's that, but this is the number of the painted Eldar is their thing. So they, they move to Leptius Numinous, which is where we get our second big Zorpazorp battle report is the defense of Leptius Numinous. And that kicks off by there's forces coming out through the fog and they fail the challenge. They do not understand the challenge. And so they know that their word bearer is coming. Yes, the Shibalev, the number of the painted Eldar. It, it calls back to sort of a, a previous shared military experience between uh, members of the Ultramarine's fourth company, uh, Captain Sidance and, and Remus Ventanus. Sidance is leading leading the remnants of um, the of uh, Ventanus's company from the Erid Muster, uh, which of course Ventanus was not present at because he was dealing with all of these political shenanigans. Uh, and so he's trying to re-coordinate what is left of his forces uh, by telling them to come and rally with him and, and Archmagos Mia Edvatorin uh, and, and the Skatari and the few ultramarines they have at this beat-up old uh, governor's palace, which is, is, is basically an old castle in an ultramarine vibe, a historical uh, place of significance. It's not a military fortification in, in any way, um, but uh, it's the best. It's not got. even like a primary... Uh place of government it's like a summer home yeah that's right it's a summer palace it's the summer residence of the governor uh so they they dig in uh and they they get a vox contact from uh, a force moving in that says hey we're ultramarines we're coming to check you guys out and they they obviously don't know the answer to the code phrase and so Ventanus is like, just start shelling the bastards. And one of the uh, other ultramarines, Sullis, is like, what are you doing? What if they're, what if they're ultramarines? And, and he's like, they're not. <laughs> and, and it turns out that it is um, the uh, Morpelzia's uh, host uh, of, of about 6,000 cultists and, and word bearers aligned units. Um, and they, uh, they, they, they lay siege and there's a, a, a pretty sweet little combat there. Um, we see, we really get to know the cult hosts in, in greater detail that the three cults that are supporting, uh, the, the word bearers and, and just the depths that they will go to in, in support of their dark masters. And then we see our first kind of real on the ground, um, I guess, I guess fight where the ultramarines, uh, and, and the loyalist forces, uh, have a bit of a chance to have a bit of scrap and, and deal some pain back. And there's a phrase in the sequence where uh, Ventanus is, is fighting and he's thinking about the fight and he's like, oh, you know, the, the loyalist forces are starting to take equal punishment now because the word bearers have moved up. Um, oh, wow. I just used the word loyalist. How bizarrely natural was it that I immediately came to that phrase? Like he gets kind of thrown by the fact he's already thinking about loyalist versus traitor and just falling into the civil war without really being aware of what's happening. Uh, so it's a really fascinating conflict. It's it's basically like a big kind of Minas Tirith siege. You have the big Rohan cavalry arriving and saving the day and side ants and fourth company and their kind of armored elements kind of murking in through the fog and blasting apart uh, the, uh, the the word bearers forces just as they're about to seize the palace. It's it's beautiful. It's maybe maybe it's more of a Helm's Deep analog than Minas Tirith with uh, from the films, but uh, it's it's an awesome awesome sequence, and it's where the book really starts to accelerate and the pacing really starts to kick on. Yeah, and you had a pretty awesome battle report of this fight as well, and uh, very enjoyable and. 
correct me if I'm wrong, you did more than one for Leptius Numinus, or was it all the one? So there's, yeah, we did, there's one, Leptius Numinus was one battle. That was the, the first battle that actually kicked off the campaign, even though the events um, at the other muster fields uh, happened earlier in the story. We pivoted to that, that launched over on Ollie's channel at the same time. Uh, but we, uh, yeah, Leptius Numinus had one really big sequence, which covered the Leptius Numinus had one really big sequence which covered that initial siege right up to uh, the um, the arrival of 4th Company and Sidans with, with elements of 8th and 9th Company as well that he kind of cobbled together. And it was really fun to kind of take, you kind of got to distill what are the key moments of the battle, what are the key landmarks, and then weave them into writing a tabletop mission so that those, the, the way that you play the game serves the story but is also is also a good game so we had the objectives tied uh to uh each side trying to do different things so that regardless of who won we could still progress the story but both players could have a good time uh we had different like a lot of really custom narrative rules the bane blade there's a big word bearer's bane blade which blows open a hole in the palace wall and the the bane blade the word bearer's controlling force they score points by getting their bane blade inside the palace limits uh, and landing troops on the wall, so their kind of objective is is taking the location. Uh, whereas the um, the uh, the loyalist forces, they they have different objectives that align more with what happened in the story. They need to kill the Baneblade and keep certain heroes alive. And then the big kind of conclusion moment in both the book and our battle report, uh, we kind of compress the events a little bit so that it happened within the battle. It actually happens just after the battle. Uh, Morpelzia, the leader of the assault force, uh, essentially gets taken captive, but volunteers himself up in surrender. And he, he attempts to offer terms to the Ultramarines uh, that's his kind of excuse for being there. He says, there's another big, there's whole Belloth's assault forces behind me. It's way bigger than mine. We're about to wipe you out. You surrender to me and I'll vouch for you. And the Ultramarines are like, dude, come on, get out of here. We're just going to, we're not, we're not going to do that. And he, he essentially baits them into killing him and, and breaking their honor code. And then through his death, we, we meet the second incarnation of Samus. The great, the great meme demon who we, we meet in the earlier books of, uh, of, um, of the Horus Heresy series. But Samus is just an amazing character. He's got this epic spiel that he gives every time he bursts forth from someone's corpse. I am the end and the death. Samus is the man beside you. Samus will gnaw on your bones. It's great. And then he just gets killed. It's so good. He <laughs> dies Harness. so fast. Yeah, so yeah, they fast. even reference it. I, they even reference it. I think it's um, uh, Vengeful Spirit later on. Mm. One of the guys that that summons it is like, yeah, even Samus was here. He died immediately. It's becoming yeah. kind of a thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a good sequence. He does oh, this huge man. big thing and then he's eating a tank uh, that they drive, they drive one of the shadow swords in and try and like nuke him point blank with the volcano cannon and just like the it kind of the beam of energy like deflects around him and Ventanus is like, oh, okay, I guess I'll just try and stab the bastard. And he just so happens to have picked up uh, the um, the perfect dagger, one of the word bearers' daggers, which he took off uh, Morpelzia and, and, and lands on the top of him and, and splices him back into the warp. Um, and Ventanus is like, I can't believe that worked. Um, it's, a, it's a great, great sequence. That is so cool. One of my favorite scenes here at Lepius Numinus is when that Bane Blade is rolling up on Ventarnus and he's like, uh, he hears the Demolisher Cannon clunk down into place. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. he thinks to himself, why doesn't it fire? 
we're yeah. totally dead. Why doesn't it fire? And then the Bane Blade's engines rev up, it revs up and it backs up. And then out of nowhere, this blinding spear of light hits that Bane Blade in the side and it explodes. And then the, the whole armored company starts rolling in and they're all in Ultramarine's colors. And it's so freaking iconic. It's so it's cool. Such, it's such a Gandalf and Aima appearing at first light of the fifth day kind of moment. Like it's really, it's, yeah, it's such a great, great sequence there. Ventanas is like, we are cooked. Like what is going on? Why isn't he just ruining us right now? And then the word, the Bane Blade literally runs over like 20 cultists that are right next to it as it quickly tries to turn around because it's obviously seen on the specs that um, the enemy armor is moving in. It's an awesome fight. But then that just that's just the beginning. That's just that's just the kickoff of our kind of our our land uh, our land combat. And and I guess this this combat the the battle at Leftius Numinus that sets up our kind of end game for the second and third arc. Uh, or the end of the second arc and third arc of the story. We get some really clear, established objectives that start to give a bit of a through line to the absolute chaos that's unfolding, which is the only hope for the Ultramarines is that they seize control of the weapons grid and start to be able to defend themselves. And to do that, they need to take control of a, another data engine, uh, which the Mechanicum server Hest uh, cleaned with his a uh, kill code that can defeat the scrap code and then locked it away. And so they there's a really nice physical objective. All the Ultramarines on the ground go, okay, we've survived Leptius Numinous. Let's mount up. Let's go back to the city where it was absolutely shit that we just came from. We got to fight our way into there, secure another data engine which can take control of the weapons grid. But up at the same time in orbit, Gilliman needs to deal with the weapons grid control unit, the module that's controlling it, and that has to be destroyed. Destroyed. And so we get these parallel objectives up in space, on the ground. Who's going to get there first? Will they both get there in time? It's just a great framework for the last act of the story. Another quick takeaway from Leptius Numinous is when there's a lull in the fighting and they're trying to get comms established. And Remus has to explain the number of the painted Eldar to the Master of Skatari. And, the, you know, he explains it, you know, there were... Uh, one of the captains was honored for killing 12 Eldar, but there were 13 dead at the end. And it's because I came in firing my bolter. The 13th Eldar might have been the one that killed this captain, but I saved him. So, you know, it's, you know, this other captain will tell you that, well, there were 12 Eldar because I was honored for killing 12 Eldar. And Remus will say, yeah, but the 13th might have killed you. So he explains this joke to the, this kind of inside joke to this master of Skatari. And the master of Skatari just says, oh, yeah. We have those kind of jokes too, but we just keep them to ourselves. And it's kind of just this this deadpan uh, takeaway of don't tell your inside jokes to other people because they won't think it's funny. And it's just kind of this dry takeaway that always makes me chuckle. I, I do love this Skitari guy. He's pretty funny and just a very deadpan way of like... Yeah, oh, Aruk is great. Yeah. And I, dude, I was so bummed when he was like, I'm going to stay here at Leptius Numinous and hold it for as long as I can because you know he's going to die. And yeah. you're like, oh, come on. I just don't want him to stick around. Yeah. Leptius Numinous, though, really is the turning point in the book. It, it shows that the, the Ultramarines are not so easily going to be destroyed. And from at that point as well, in the uh, in the orbital battle, the Ultramarines have really succeeded in taking back the McCrag's honor. So there, after uh, after Lorgar hangs up the phone on Gilliman and summons this demon on the bridge of the McCrag's honor, this demon breaks out all the uh, the glass 
on the, the bridge of the ship and shoots Gilman out into space. So we think that Gilman is dead. In the next scene of the bridge we get, Marius Gage, uh, no, not Marius Gage. Yeah, it's Gage. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I, I always get um, Marius Ferozian and Marius Gage mixed up. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Marius, no, Marius Ferozian is a very different guy. Very different character, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but, but Gage wakes up to this horror show on the bridge of the ship of this demon walking around eating his dead battle brothers, and it's about to eat him. And then Aenid Thiel comes in swinging this, this axe and this sword, and you know after they kill the demon, they stand up and they both say together, this vessel has not yet begun to fight. And they they get together with all these veterans, and they put together, this is where it comes into the whole, uh, you know, there are no more rules. We're all going to use, you know, all this crazy weaponry to purge the ship. And they take back the McCrag's honor that is just swarming with demons and is actively being started, you know, the workers are starting to board it and take the ship. I love that so line they, so much. You know what that is, right? Oh, it's um, John Paul Jones, right? It's John Paul Jones. Are you familiar with John Paul Jones, Lockie? Okay, John Paul Jones. Okay, we're going to complete off the side here. John Paul Jones was a, a guy from Scotland in who he was in the British Navy and he shot someone. So he ran away to the 13 colonies of America. The revolution kicked off. He went to Congress and said, I'm going to raise you a Navy. And they said, you can have one ship defend our coast and with that one ship. And he said, okay, I'm going to sail to England and start sacking ports. And so he sails all the way to England with his one ship, starts sacking ports and gets caught up by the British Navy over by England. And they take out his ship functionally. They, they cut like they cut his main mast, everything. And through the smoke, the British captain says, all right, it's time to surrender. And John Paul Jones calls back. I have not yet begun to fight. And he takes their ship and sails away in that. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. This That's a real story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I love that he uses that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really cool scene. The one thing that like I kind of didn't love in this is that Gilliman just lives for a obnoxiously long time in vacuum without a helmet. He's not in vacuum. He's not in vacuum. Then I think I think Dan negotiated this nicely. Oh, look, there's obviously going to be a bit of plot armor in places, but no, he, he says you know uh, voided to space without a helm. Primark bio Primark biology helped, but the atmospheric envelope of the ship was my true savior. So the premise is that there's a massive gravity well all over the McCrag's honor from gravitic generators because that um that gravitic well uh, is meant to have like a really skin level kind of low atmosphere that clings to the surface of the ship, which is designed to help facilitate all of the open launch bays so that ships can easily fly in and out of hangars without having to have heaps and heaps of hangar bay doors and, you know, different uh, kind of airlock systems. So that is supposedly what enabled Gilliman to just hang out on the outside of the ship for uh, a, a, a pretty substantial length of time. But, you know, he's, 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 yeah. He's, he's I think it would have just been easier solved if he was like, I got yoinked out the window and I threw my helmet on real fast. <laughs> <laughs> Notice it's notice it's so like when he's when uh 
Thiel is like fighting and Gilliman like pops up later on and yeah. then he's like oh whoa it's Gilliman and then he's like oh my god he's got a helmet <laughs> Gilliman's like yeah. screaming silently because of course it's void combat and he's just got like this white face which is all pallid from being exposed and he's real angry the whites of his eyes it's a pretty cool image I, I do this love is- in that fight how they're like alright boys we're cooked and then Gilliman just popped up and is like surprise yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he comes out of nowhere and there's this scene where this word bearer is just unloading his bolter right at Gilman and Gilman just clunk right on the top of the head and yeah. crushes his head down into his chest plate. Oh, it's so, so fucking cool. It is very cool. Then he punches the next guy and his head just punches clean off and sails off into the void. <laughs> yeah, good work, Jim. Yeah, you really get to see Gilman go off and I am just here for it. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and he he tells before he gets shot out into space, he figures out the you know the the war bears have been planning this the whole time, and he's starting to lose his shit. And Gage is like, "Calm down, sir." And Gilman says, "Fuck off! I'm fighting this one with my heart, not my mind, for once." Yeah. <laughs> I in it, it's funny, but it it also is incredibly humanizing to Gilman because at this point when he's sitting there just taking notes and figuring all this stuff out, you're like, "This guy's a robot." And you realize that, no, he, he is, it's very, very humanizing. One of my biggest praises of Deliverance Lost is just the one small scene where Korax is on a Thunderhawk evacuating Istvan, and he just sits down for a second. Because that, with these superhuman beings, it goes so far. It's so important. And to have it here, I think it's it's masterfully done. All right. It's like, we um, get... oh, go ahead. It's like, uh, there's a, a scene in American history where George Washington stands up before Congress and puts on his reading glasses, which back then would have been seen as a sign of weakness. But with George Washington, it was seen as, you know, he's this legendary figure at this point in our history. It's seen as a very humanizing moment for him. And so Congress was like, oh, he's he's serious about this. That's when they no were trying pretext. to make him king. There's Yeah, there's no pretext of vanity with him, yeah. basically. But it, it's important for these characters who literally are larger than life that there is still an element of humanity in there. Um, I think that's from other folks I know who have, have uh, who have reviewed this series. A lot of the complaint I hear running through is that the, the space Marines and the Primarchs are completely unrelatable. You can't identify with them at all. And I, I, I disagree with that fundamentally. I think they're, you know, there's a there's a line to be walked and sometimes it's not walked as well sometimes it's walked better this is one of those where it is done incredibly well and so much praise to dan abnett for for doing that all right should we get into the kind of the last act here i we may or may not talk about a gigantic zone mortalis game getting into as um as lucky mentioned we get into this these clear-cut objectives and it's basically remus needs to retake this spaceport that has a secure cogitator that can be used to retake the orbital defense array. At the same time, Gilliman and Anand Thiel need to retake the cogitators the word bearers are currently using to run the orbital defense array. Because, you know, you can't just, you, the, the, you can't turn on two control units and expect both of them to work in you know, uh, compete against one another. They have to shut down the bad guys before they can actually get the defense array back. So, like I said, they're going to lead these dual movements where Remus is going to go take the spaceport, Gilman is going to go take the uh, orbital dock, and there, it, this this is the end 
uh, this is the the end game. You know, they have to succeed. So they're going to throw everything at it. Uh, Remus is taking all the forces he has. Gilman is putting together this crazy plan of shooting themselves with a teleporter across the you know half the orbital dock and just kind of rolling the dice to see what happens there. We all know how unreliable Deep Strike is, which I, I think it's funny how the... I think it's well done, I should say, how that teleportation sequence actually plays out. So Gilman Nathiel, leading a uh, as many veterans as they can put together, shoot themselves across the, the, the space docks, and they're able to board the as the Zetson's Varied Yard. I, I don't know how to say it properly. But yeah, the Zetson, the Zetson Varied Yard. Yep, and that's where the word bearers are. And Gilman has to, he doesn't get concrete information on where this um, these cogitators are running from. So he, it's another thing he has to put together in his superhuman mind. And it's really cool how Abnett goes through that. So he ends up putting it together and he's like, we're going to roll the dice. I'm 99.9% sure this is where it is. And they're right. And then Remus is running this last-ditch effort, throwing everything he has at this spaceport. And uh, is it... Um, which word bearer is there? Uh, uh, Fodor Ophel. It's generic mustached villain number four. It's the word bearer <laughs> yeah. come on now. <laughs> uh, well, um, he I is, do want to uh, talk about, just before we get into this, what the word bearers are actually doing with this weapons grid. Because first they were blowing up all these ships... But uh, Marius Gage makes a point of saying, hey, actually, some of the very largest um, ultramarine ships are still left intact. And they essentially surmise, hey, the word bearers want to take these ships. So they want to uh, the they want to add, add them to their fleet functionally so that what they do is they end up redirecting the weapons grid to fire into the sun and disrupt the sun and cause it to go nova. Um the one area I disagree with, and this is a bit of plot armor and just the word bearers being dumb, is you would have blown up the McCrag's honor. Um, even if it's a Gloriana class ship, you go, there's a Primark on there that can't stick around. <laughs> That's got to be taken off the board immediately. So bit of I plot armor the, there. I think but... the only rebuttal I can think of for that is that their plan is that Gilliman was supposed to die in the, like, demon transformation of Lorgar, and so they're, like, assuming that that's happened, and then they're like, well, we'll keep his ship. But I totally, yeah, I I, I see what you mean. It is a bit like, yeah, obviously they, they want to bulk their fleet. Wouldn't you just zap the McCrags on her? Just to be sure, and then and then and then be happy with the other fleets. But the whole the whole premise of Kelth is that the work bearers did do a little bit of trying to have their cake and eat it too. So mm. and and they paid the price. Um, yeah. So that, well, that and this is me works. just this is me just prescribing to the Caiaphas Cain philosophy of the Warhammer universe of you know if you bring that Meltagon, it's going to destroy the specimen as well as a good portion of the wall behind it. <laughs> yeah. Very true. <laughs> So anyway, they they zap themselves onto this tele, uh, onto this uh, orbital dock. It does not go perfectly. A couple of guys end up in the wall. One ends up halfway in the floor. What a way to go, man! Like that would just not be not be fun. And I've seen this happen in a lot of sci-fi of somebody getting meshed with another structure, and they say it's like it's supposedly supposed to be the most painful way to go. And you know, Gilman is even like, well, that's. He, it, Gilman has to kill the last guy because there's another guy, one of the, like the fourth guy comes through, it's just a pile of mush because he never reformed. 
and that it was so much of a gamble because they put all the power from the McCrags honor into the teleporters to get them this far. This is a very far destination for them. Because if the if the McCrags honor lights its drives and starts moving, the word bearers are going to know something's up. If they mass everything for a teleport launch, it's it's going to be a little less detectable. And it it gives them the advantage. They they get there just in the nick of time. Well, and it's it's what they say is it's detectable. It's completely detectable. But they can't do anything about it once it's done. Yeah, detectable detectable locally in the Zets and Buried Yard. So Sorit, Chure, and Corfairon instantly know that a teleport flare has spiked. And then they can obviously communicate to the word bearer's fleet. But it is that we see earlier that kind of that decision-making process on what tactic do they do they take. You know, uh, Empion says, let's light drives, let's go in for close assault, let's ram the orbit if necessary. And, uh, you know, Marius Gage said, that's that's not going to work. You know, we should we should te- we should teleport. And, and uh, I, you know, there, there's also the option of trying to trying to blast it out. But every other option they look at, the weapons grid is just going to be retasked and blow them out. And, and who knows if that'll even work. Maybe the ship will have a drive issue when they power up after this huge incident. So they go for teleporting and uh, it almost works. Reformation failure for four out of 50 of the kill squad. So they move into the Zets and Verid Yard with 46 members ready to try and cut their way into the control room. Uh, and uh, the Warbearers still have a few tricks up their sleeves though. Yeah, and those tricks equate to a lot of warp fuckery is what it what it boils down to. Yes, basically. Corferon yeah, shooting freaking laser beams out of his hands. <laughs> yeah, Corferon hits Gilliman with this fucking warp blast and throws him into a wall. And then Gilliman's just out of the fight. Gilliman's, yeah, that's it. I got hit with, with warp fuckery and, yep. and I'm done now. And, and this, is the, this is the I, biggest... I I had a thing for this. I was thinking about how the concussive uh, concussive rule works in uh, in heresy right now. If you're hit with a concussive weapon, it has a bracket with it, like concussive one, two, three, or whatever, and it reduces your weapon skill by that bracket. So yeah, if Gilman's hit with a big concussive blast, he's not going to be worth a shit in the coming fight phase, basically. So seems plausible. Okay, I'll I'll buy it. There's mechanics for that in the game. I like how that translates. It's not explicitly stated as they don't throw it in your face, but you could put it together, you know, if you know the rules, if you know the lore. Yeah, and this is the part where I'm screaming at the book because I want to complain about Corferon being this dumb, but he absolutely is this dumb. Like, I have no no ground to stand on at all because he's an idiot. <laughs> and and that's the thing that's nice about this sequence is like you can be angry with because essentially for the for the audience, uh, Corfairon has Gilliman at his knees and he's he's faced. Uh, I think the words are Corfairon is faced with a choice and it delights him. He can kill Gilliman, but imagine if he could turn him. Erebus turns the Warmaster. If Erebus can do it, Corfairon can do it. So Corfairon goes, all right, I'm going to do the classic bad guy speech. I'm going to start talking to you, Robute, and being like, whoa, man, like, yo, just you wait till I reveal the truth to you, bro. And then, uh, and, and uh, you know, Corfairon decides to get on his podium instead of just sticking him like he should. And uh, sometimes when you're watching, you know, every movie ever where that happens, it's really frustrating. But Dan Abnett totally, like, sells the motivation of Corfairon. He is 
a pompous wanker who is so self-inflated and absorbed with his own existence and his own delusions of grandeur, particularly as we've known his backstory. You know, he's not a true Astartes. He's essentially uh, Lorgar's surrogate father who is, who's not really a space marine. He's heavily modified, so he has this whole inferiority complex. He's always on the brink of death, but leans more into the kind of warp magic to keep himself alive. And, and so he's constantly trying to prove himself in Lorgar's court and stay relevant. He was very threatened by the Emperor because he felt that he, the father the figure of Lorgar had been replaced. So this he's always trying to up everything and, and improve his status. And so it's totally believable that he would be like, I'm going to just, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to try and turn you. And then, of course, that manages to be the fatal error. And Gilliman goes, uh, you made an error. Uh, and, uh, and and wreaks his vengeance upon him and thrusts thrusts yeah. the, uh, the the big old it, power yeah, fist. Yeah, an un, unpowered power fist. It, it, yeah. Uh, you know, Abnett's like, it lost power a long time ago, but it doesn't stop Gilliman from ramming his fist through Corferon's chest plate and pulling his heart out. It is one of his hearts. One of his hearts. <laughs> yeah. Not just yeah. not just any power fist, the freaking hand of Dominion. Yes, the hand of Dominion. <laughs> <laughs> a big, a big power fist. I don't really know how there'd be room for, you know, that fist is so big. You must have just grabbed one side of the chest. Yeah, it's, but... it's like he got a finger and thumb in there and plucked it out. <laughs> yeah, Because if Gilman put his whole power fist in anybody's chest plate, there'd be room for nothing else. Yeah, I, I guess warpy, warpy, timey, wimey, we can make it work. Yeah. But it is, it is, it is a, a really awesome, awesome sequence. And 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 you see, and they, they, the way that that kind of, you know, it's it's almost like you've got these big duel, you big two baddies, and there's the swirl of maelstrom around both the lieutenants with Osorit Chure on the side of the word bear and of course our boy A&E Thiel they're they're dueling as well and they're both going oh crap our dad's getting messed up here we need to go help but we also are fighting each other and then you know when Gilliman's on the ropes Thiel's just freaking out trying to get through but then when there's that little wet pop of the fist impaling and Sorachure looks up and goes daddy no and then uh, you know he he, he, he worships on and and, yeah it's it's, it's good. Thiel sees his opening and he does something masterful with it. He cuts off half of Sorachure's face. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm good not going to lie. When, like, I knew I knew Gilliman was going to mess up Corferon. But when he goes and he ripped his heart out, and I was like, oh. Yeah. Satisfying. <laughs> satisfying. Yeah. Of course he doesn't it's die. Usually something, but, you know. It's usually something like, and then I cut his head off, or, you know, I. I uh, cut off his arm or whatever. We don't really see organs getting ripped out that often. Yeah. It is a sound. Well, and sequence. I'm not going to lie. I, for a minute there, because Corferon is a Demi Astartes, I didn't realize he had two hearts. Um, so at first there for a second, I was like, hold on, he doesn't die here. How are they going to bring him back from this? But I guess he does have two hearts. I was not aware of, of that. No, 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 no. He was just held together by the power of hatred and the dark side or whatever. Well, yeah, that's what I was like, oh, so we're going with like warp fuckery here to just keep him alive. I'm pretty uh, sure, I'm pretty sure that he, he has two hearts. I think I remember the, the yeah. phrasing that one of his hearts gets plucked out. Because obviously he's okay. he's partly gone down the process uh, of Astarte's modification, but he hasn't been able to go the full journey because he yeah. was super old. Um, so I think and- he does have the secondary heart. We're starting to get get a little ahead of ourselves because at this point, um, 
our boy Remus down on the surface has pushed into the starport and plugged in um, uh, uh, Turin into the the new data cogitators that have been cleansed. And they're sending their their override code to the uh, to the orbital dock to try and retake the, uh, the the space defense system, and nothing's happening because Gilman and Thiel have not taken their objective yet. So they're just sending the kill code, sending the kill code, sending the kill code. And nothing's happening, and they're starting to lose ground. They think that hope is lost, and right at that moment, we get a couple more characters coming in. We've gotten these little vignettes throughout the story that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet. The crowning of that all hope is lost is they see two Reaver Titans stride out of the fog. Yeah, and, and Remus is like, well, it's another one, well, we're cooked. And Turin is like, no, 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 they're ours. They're they're with us. They're loyalist Reaver Titans. And these these Titans are striding in. And on top of that, our boy, uh, uh, let's see, I, I cost Lamiad, one of the uh, tur- uh, Triarchs, uh, Gilliman's champion, the Primarch's champion, uh, Lamiad, is coming in with a Contemptor Dreadnought. We've seen this character, Honorable Telemachus, coming in. Uh, he's come in and out of the story, kind of talking about Dreadnought psychology, which is another point I wanted to touch on. We haven't seen Dreadnought perspective or Dreadnought psychology in any of the books up until this point. I guess we did get a little bit of, uh, of Ralinor and um, uh, Huron Fell from the Death Guard and the Emperor's Children. But other than that, we haven't really seen any Dreadnought perspective or anything like that. So this is really cool to see kind of... Well, and and I'll say those two as well. Their their perspective is very human. Telemectris yeah. is really the first time we truly get like, hey, you are not a man anymore. Yeah, and it's like, you don't even... When you become a Dreadnought, you don't even get to keep your original name. They rename you so that you know you're something else now. Anyway, Remus is kind of at this uh, uh, an all hope is lost moment when you get this striding form of Icos Lamiad and Telemachus leading this whole host of these kind of um, ad hoc units coming in and kind of saving their bacon right at the last moment. Meanwhile, Turin is still sending the kill code. Meanwhile, back up in orbit, Gilman has just ripped out the heart of Corferon and the word bearers freak out. They're like, we got to get the heck out of here. And so they start to bail, and um, our boy Thiel kind of has this awkward moment of he gets to the the control panel, and he's like, I don't know how to shut it down. And Kimmel's like, just shoot the damn thing! And so he hoses it with his bolter, and that kills the system. And at that point, it's on like Donkey Kong. You know, that even with the reinforcements we just got on the surface, you know, it's it, it starts to turn very quickly even after that, because they're still outnumbered by word bearers. But... Our, our our babe Turin has the kill code now. She now has control of the the orbital defense system, and she turns the guns from pointing to the sun to pointing back down to the surface. She immediately starts to sort targets and starts just roasting the word bearers from orbit. It is so freaking satisfying. So I, I love this part, too, because we kind of get this inverse of the countdown to the mark uh, in this, in that... She's sitting there talking to this other ultramarine who's down there with her, like, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? And then she starts giving this. Uh, Captain Remus has an annihilation mark of, you know, four minutes and 32 seconds. Uh, revise that. Now it's eight minutes and 52 seconds. Uh, revise that. Now it's 12 minutes and 17 seconds. Revise that. It's now 47 minutes. And it's this really cool, like, 
oh, we're, this is truly the tide is turning of, and, and they use this, this time benchmark of, that just keeps getting pushed out of like when they're all going to die. Oh, you now have, you're, you're expected to last this long. Oh, now it's this long. Oh, now it's this long as compared to the, to the mark, which was counting down to when all these people were going to die. Um, so I, I really love how that was done. 112th. I was, there we go. 111th and 112th company. I just had to remember what I, because Ankaiser, Ankaiser rocks up as well um, in this end sequence. I, I like, I like the, um, the takeaway of Ankaiser's uh, whole thing is like his, his um, direction, his uh, putting together and direction of the leftover elements would be the stuff of legend and would be written down in the annals of history. He, he basically is the inspiration for some of the Codex Astartes with how he handled this, uh, you know, putting everybody else back together. I thought that was a, just a really cool, almost throwaway line in the book about his, um, well, not a throwaway line, but just kind of a descriptor about what he did. There's so many one-offs in this book of, that are just like incredibly profound. Like, like I talked about the one earlier of like, none of this would matter because in two days he'll be dead. You know, <laughs> that's referring to Sergeant Hellock, who is the he's the loyalist who gets the first loyalist kill in the Battle of Calf. And it's just because he sees these cultists charging him. He pulls out his pistol. I think he only gets like one or two kills before they run him down. But, you know, it's it's recorded in it's recorded in the Mark of Kelth as Gilliman is putting this all together in retrospective of this is the guy that got it first. So anyway, jumping back in here, uh, the the ground force is relieved uh, and the, they take re, they take control of the weapons grid. And basically a big evacuation starts of the remaining ships that the Ultramarines have left because the star is going supernova. Um, and one thing I want to hit on real quick, I, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time here, is that Erebus has been sitting on, I think, the North Pole this entire time, just doing fuck-off demon rituals. And this kicks off the Ruin Storm, which we all know is essentially why the Loyalists cannot coordinate with each other. So it's it's a big, big freaking deal. So I think that it's good that this is included because it can be looked at of like, you know, a criticism could potentially be of this book that all oh, the Wardbearers had everything going and they just managed to find the one rake in a field and step right on it. But it, it actually still very much is a win for them. Kind of in wrap up here, that the star is going supernova. The the Ultramarines fleet, they well, first off, Marius Gage just takes right off after uh Corferon. And it's just dogging him the entire way out of the system. and But the rest of the Ultramarines fleet is pulling everybody they can off of this, uh, off the, the surface of the planet before it goes Nova. And the rest of them are taking shelter in the arcologies that we know are there because this sun gets unstable from time to time. And then we shift to the epilogue, which is the Ultramarines burning Colchis. Uh, it's specifically Remus Ventarnus burning the Colchis. Now, I don't know if this got retconned later or if he just went with the Dark Angels because this is their shtick. They go burn all the traitor homeworlds. So I don't know if he just went with them and didn't go with uh, Gilliman to Terra 
or how that worked? I, I think this was personal for them. So I think the Ultramarines got Colchis. I think the Dark Angels were there, though, because this is kind of their bag. I'll, I'll give it to you. I'll, I, yeah, the more the merrier. Um, the word bearers deserve it no matter what. It's it's one of the in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't actually matter that much. Um, we know that most of the Ultramarines go to Terra, um, and then the Lion just delights himself with burning traitor homeworlds. I know he gets um, God, what's the Death Guard uh, home planet called? Barbarous. Yeah, yeah, Barbarous. I know that he gets that one, and I know that he gets Cthonia as well. I'm pretty sure he gets Nostromo. No, um, Conrad Kerr's glasses Nostromo before the heresy even happens. Okay, okay. Uh, I did not know that. So yeah, Colchis, sorry, I just looked it up. Colchis isn't actually destroyed in uh, by the Dark Angels. Um, it doesn't happen, it's not burned until the scouring after the heresy has ended. So for some okay, reason... Okay, so I guess the lion just hadn't gotten there yet. Yeah, yeah, he just, he, before he just, yeah, he, he hadn't gotten around to it. Um, and so it is It is just the Ultramarines who go to Colchis. The important line there is when he plants the standard, the same standard he recovered from that that train station, he plants it in the burning soil of Colchis, and one of his lieutenants says, we march from a crag, and Remus says, no, today we march for Calf. So good. Such a great yeah. intro. Yeah, just such, <laughs> such... Well, yeah. And I love what comes right after that, which is that as long as there is a word bearer alive, the mark continues to run. Yeah, so that's right. The Legion combat record of the Mark of Kelf, like, it, it, it actually is one of the few combat records that is considered to essentially be perpetually active. Because that's yes. like a sort of state of pride, that until they can confirm that all word bearers are annihilated, which of course is basically going to be impossible, uh, they um, that, that record keeps on running. And that's the outro. That's that's the sequence that, that concludes the book. So before we get into final thoughts, Warwick, do you want to talk about all? Yeah, so Abnett will often do this with a lot of his stories. Um, he very rarely, there's there's only, uh, the, the only book he wrote that was ex- uh, basically exclusively, or exclusively Space Marines was uh, Brothers of the Snake, which there is... Um, there is a Captain Democles in this story whose personal heraldry is the figure of eight snake, which is the, he's the founder of the Iron Snakes chap. Anyway, that's basically the only story he does that is exclusively Space Marine perspective. Generally what he does in a lot of his writing is add a human perspective to all stories to give a sense of vulnerability. And that's why we have the, the perspective of the, the army vets that are anyway, Rain and Crank. It's it's to, to give you a more human level relatable character. And one of the other characters we have here is All Person. Early on in his, um, you know, we kind of get to know who he is. He's this retired military guy. He is um, just trying to run a farm. And as it turns out, you know, after everything kicks off and his, his fields are flooded, you know, he has this terrible dream where an old character shows up from a previous story our guy, John Grammaticus. And you, you remember him from Legion. He's another perpetual that is in service to this alien cabal. And Grammaticus comes to our boy all in this kind of vision is all is unconscious and says, this is the end war all. This is the one that we're preparing for. I need your help. And all is, you know, is just dead set against it. He's like, I don't, you know, I don't want any part of this. I'm retired, you know, 
um, I, I can't help. I'm, I'm not going to be able to do anything. But Grammaticus is like, it's too late and it's not up to you. You have to go help him. He's the one, you know, he needs us. And, you know, all is like, am I doing this for the emperor? And Grammaticus eventually says, no, you're doing it for all of humanity. Uh, because he knows he knows there's something greater in effect here, and basically what it does is sets all kind of on this objective that we don't really know about. We don't know where all is headed, what he's doing. He puts together this kind of rad ragtag band of survivors. He's got a farmhand. He's got uh, a girl that worked in like his um, kind of packing and shipping uh, building or whatever for the, the flowers and grass that he sold. He's got a loading servitor, which I, there's a funny scene with the loading servitor where it's a retired army uh, shell loading servitor. And when all is being attacked by one of these cultists, the servitor just clubs the guy because it still kind of has this military coding of like, if your artillery crew is getting attacked, you can hit people. And so it's just this dumb servitor that just clubs the dude to the ground. And eventually all picks up these two, um, these two army vents, Crank and Reigns, and the, the scene with that is where all gets the drop on the cultists that are about to kill Crank and Reigns because they're off getting water well. All is getting the ship ready. And all straight up bodies like eight of these cultists before anybody knows that they're dying. And that's when I'm like, okay, yeah, I can see him being a millennia's old war veteran who's, you know, been using a gun the entirety of his existence, basically. But it's not until after that we find out he's way older than, you know, even like a, a Revolutionary War veteran or anything like that. He, he sailed with Jason the Argonauts. He's millions of years old at this point. So, all is on this weird mission. He picks up this anathame from, you know, one of the ritual daggers from one of these cultists. And he's able to get these survivors to this warp portal or rift or whatever and get them off the planet right before it dies. And I, I think there's a lot of takeaway from his arc of just the kind of the human perspective, quote unquote, of, you know, what this guy is dealing with, what he's seen throughout the years. Um, I think the little kind of hints in, I don't, I don't want to say foreshadowing, I don't know, just the, the hints of who he was, like the scene from Verdun, um, the uh, talking about Crescentine Ridge, which is a, I don't think that's an historical engagement. That's, that is a engagement he was in before he retired from the Ultramarines. I think he was with the Ultramarines. I can't remember what uh, unit he was with before he retired, but it's it's when he was fighting in the Great Crusade, and now he's just trying to retire. Just the, just the kind of lines and drops from him make him a very interesting character to me. I know, Brandon, you didn't feel the same way, but you know, um, if you guys want to talk about your kind of takeaway from his character, I thought he was really good. My problem with this guy is that they simultaneously give us too much and not enough of him. I will admit also a big problem I had with the story is where it pops up, where he pops up, getting into, okay, the Ultramarines have figured out what's going on. They're going to start figuring out what they're going to do from here. And then John Chromaticus appears. And I'm like, go away, John Chromaticus. I don't want Metaplot right now. I need to know what's going on right here. And so it, it, where where this, this plot line kind of started, kind of, I'm not going to lie, it really yanked me out of, what was going on up to that point. It's just a kind of a hard stop right there. And like, I, I, I didn't like how it was done. It kind of just kills the action for me and the anticipation of what's going to happen next. And 
what I say when I say that they give us too much of this character and also not enough, he doesn't do much while in this plot line. Like they, they get out of the city, they get on a boat, they go up, they get a warp rift. He shoots the, the guy that's following them. They go through this warp rift and they're gone. In the grand scheme of things, there's a couple of action scenes in between that it's, it's not that much, not that much is happening with this character. And at the same time, they're like, this guy fought at Austerlitz. He fought at Verdun. He sailed with Jason at the Argonauts. Like, this guy's a huge deal, obviously. And it just, it really felt to me that this character was being introduced. But he's not actually going to matter until down the line. So for me, it's, okay, give him to me when he's actually going to matter. And we know how this, this series is laid out. I don't expect to come back to this character in the near future. I expect to come back to him eight books down the line. And they're like, remember this guy? And I'm like, not really, because he didn't stand out in the, the book that he was introduced in. That's that's my critique of the character. You guys are welcome to disagree with me. I love him. <laughs> in stark contrast to Brando, I, um, I, I really enjoy the old sequences. I, I like the kind of palate cleanser of um you know non-stop space for any stuff um so i find the function that he serves within no no fears narrative to be really useful not just because he old's old's narrative arc is like a vehicle for showing off the human characters um but which you know if you didn't have old you could have done it another way so uh that's fine but i just i just really enjoy I've, i love john grammaticus i love all that stuff i think it's like a another interesting aspect uh, that isn't just isn't just space marines on space marines and heresy heresy all the time. It's it's kind of grounds it in this deeper history and and so so. But that, that's that's cool. That's cool. I, I just I just really enjoy him. He's a big favorite of mine. Well, even with John Grammaticus though, he is prevalent through the entirety of Legion, and he is a central character in that book. So when he pops up, I remember this guy. When this guy pops up eight books from now, I'm gonna be like. Who was this dude again? Oh yeah, he like did some stuff on Kalth. And that's it. And Dan Abnett, you're right, Warwick. Dan Abnett always gives us a human character to go along with the Space Marines. Ironically, he's the one, maybe two authors in Black Library that I actually don't think needs to do that because he's so good at humanizing Space Marines. So other, other authors, this is a necessity. They have to have a human character or else it's just not good. He's one of the few writers who can actually pull them off, though. Right, because not, not only does he make a space brain feel like a human, he makes a Primarch feel like a human. So I agree with that. Um, I, I don't think it's too long before all shows up again. And then after that, I'm not sure how much farther it is or how much longer we're waiting. After. So I think he shows up in, like, the, the there's a Mark of Calth book of short stories, basically. I think he shows up in that one. But then um, I don't think it's until the Siege of Terra books that he actually shows up again. Yeah, so there's not like it, yeah he he pops up in one of the the Mark of Kelth anthology shorts, and then I think it's it's not until Terra that that we get him again because I, I love him so much. I went looking. I was like, right, where can I find more about Ol's journey? Because uh, he's he's essentially his journey becomes hopping through dimensions, trying to splice his way through these rifts to try and land in the right place at the right time to complete his task that John Grammaticus has set him. 
Um, and so I was like, there's got to be more on this. And there's actually not that much until you get into the Siege of Terror stuff where uh, he gets he gets lots of um, screen time, which is awesome. That's that's kind of a critique way off in the future that I have with the Siege of Terror is some of those books. I feel like there was a lot of characters that were introduced that these various authors are invested in. And the Siege of Terror is the wrap of all of it. And they're all like, oh, shit, we got to finish all of this right now. Yeah, now... Now that I now that you mention it though, it you explaining that to me, now I understand more of what John Grammaticus is doing. Because I've read a few of the Siege of Terror books. I haven't finished the series um up to the I'm not current on where they're at in the series. But when he when John Grammaticus pops up, I'm like, what are you doing? And this, from what we get from No No Fear, would not help explain that for me. So he's the I'm man with the plan. The that's that's John. He's, sometimes the plan ain't working, but that's his, he's the man with the plan. So uh, other than the all arc, is there anything that you think you guys, you guys think that we're missing? I, I don't think so. I, I think we've touched on everything now. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are these little kind of, like you said, these vignettes uh, yeah. with, with, with all the various characters and they all kind of weave together beautifully into the conclusion, which is the real strength yeah, that, of, of the book. That makes it kind of really awkward book to talk about because with the, the way that the vignettes are broke up, we'll get kind of sidetracked or, or kind of hyper-focused on a single arc and then we'll wind up at the end and like, okay, now we got to go back. And so we might've sprawled a little bit on this one, but you should I've try trying to make a, a battle report campaign that yeah, reads well to an I audience bet. out of this book. I am. Um, I've had a ton of fun talking about this. Like I said, this is easily one of my favorite books. I I absolutely love this. I I don't have I don't know that, that I have any criticisms criticisms of it, even its lowest points. I've been in, I was engaged the entire in, entire time, and I've read this book like four or five times now. It's it's great. I love it. Yeah, I was incredibly impressed with this book. Um, it's it's so crazy to me that Prospero Burns and No No Fear came from the same author uh, because that is a book that I just despised as to compare to a book that I absolutely love. This, you know, I, I have nothing but high praise for this. Like I said, I have a few criticisms of, of the book. They don't do enough to make me not think that this book is fantastic. Yeah, I, I I adore this book. My my whole life is basically listening to audiobooks. So I'm in the workshop working. It's either either one of the works of Tolkien is on, or it's the Horus Heresy series. That is, there's always something going on. So I'm not exaggerating when I say that, like in the last probably two and a half years, I've easily listened to this audiobook twenty times. Um, it's nice. it's it's one of my total like it's like a comfort happy place. On goes no no fear. Um, I uh, I absolutely absolutely love it. Um, yeah, it's it's got great characters. It's enthralling the entire way through uh, the narrative. It's where I remember like read when I read the first five books of this uh, of the Heresy series. It was like a kind of landmark moment for me reading as as an adult i guess i like i the, the, i never felt like suffocated with fear before like the stakes of like soul targets and i was just like totally on the edge of my seat and i was like this is a transcendent like literary experience listening to these audiobooks and i never really felt that again throughout the remainder of the heresy series except for a few fleeting moments where it really gripped me again until no no fear so for me, that that early arc is really amazing, and then No No Fear, and those are sort of the pinnacles of the first 
sort of wave or couple of waves of of the heresy series it's a really really good book yeah i think i think as well that comes a bit of that comes from as well you know we talk about that first five books we go up through the drop site massacre and if you really look at the the meta of the horus heresy there are key milestones to it and the first one is the drop site massacre the first one is the Istvan system and the conflict there. The next one really is the betrayal at Calv. And up until we're finally there, we're finally at the second milestone and it was just masterfully executed. And of course the, the thing that gives the, that initial arc so much strength is like, obviously, you know, Horace is going to be a bad guy, but you don't know any of the minutia. So it, it, you're, you are experiencing the betrayal for the first time. And that's what makes that so powerful. And that's what makes the rest of the series so challenging to write is everyone knows who's bad and who's good and who's betraying who. And that's why No No Fear is so brilliant, is you know the word bearers are bad, you know the ultramarines are good, and you know they're about to get knifed in the back, and yet it's not like a boring, foregone conclusion. It's still this visceral thing that you experience. It's really, really cool. Yeah, definitely. Well, should we uh, should we wrap up here? All right, well, first off, I want to say, Lockheed, thanks for coming on. Uh, yeah, this absolutely. has been an absolute blast. You're most welcome. I will talk about No No Fear any day. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I speak for, for both of us when I say you have a standing invite to come back on the show whenever you would like. Thank you very much, nice. guys. Great being great yeah. fun. Been an absolute blast. I'm so happy to have you. Like I said, I was shocked when Brandon said, Zorp, Zorp Daddy wants to come on. And I was like, <laughs> no way. I don't believe you. You're making that up. You're flying too close to the sun, whatever. No, and here you are. So this has been amazing. Folks, why don't you look us up on social media? We are Legion Cast, a Horace Heresy podcast on X or Twitter, whatever you want to call it. And shoot us an email at legioncast18 at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. And don't forget to like and share this podcast for to all your friends. Brandon, Lockie, why don't you guys go ahead and say goodbye? Thanks for listening, guys. It's been a thrill talking about the greatest book in the Horus Heresy. And where can people find you? Uh, on YouTube is this the spot to find Zorp Zorp. And uh, uh, Zorp Hammer is our second channel, which is dedicated to the gaming side. The hobby, scenery, landscape side happens on Zorp Zorp. Uh, and the Battle Report campaign for the Mark of Kelth will be relaunching over on Zorp Hammer. Uh, where all the uh, the gaming likes to happen. Hopefully, at some point, uh, where I'm aiming for mid 2024, but we will we'll see what happens with the craziness of the YouTube landscape. And folks, don't forget to check out our next hobby roundtable coming up in a couple of weeks. And then after that, we will be talking about the Primarchs book. So we'll have the whole panel on again. My brother Manipal, our co-host Paul, and Brandon and I will be here to talk about those crazy short stories. Brandon, why don't you go ahead and take us out? All right, thanks for stopping by, everybody, and remember to march in fortune.